This morning, there is a lot to talk about, and there's a lot on my mind, and I'm sure there's a lot on your mind as well. So before I read our scripture lesson this morning, I just had a few, a few things that I believe I, I need to say about the events of last week, especially the last few days. In the light of the Supreme Court's decision on, on the Dobbs case on Friday, overturning Roe versus Wade, as pastors, your pastors here, we decided that it was important that we communicate clearly and quickly about our response to this decision. We felt that it was important to make a clear declaration of our position, and we wanted you to know without having to guess where we stood. To sum it up, we are pro-life, and as pastors, we are pro-all of life. Now, what does that mean? We are pro-all of life. Our members, as individuals, and our church have the track record to prove it. Our church is involved in ministering to people through spiritual support, through counseling, through adoption services, and through health care. With partners like Any Woman Can, Young Lives, One by One, South Texas Alliance for Orphans, we have engaged more and more deeply in providing networks and services of support for people in crisis. Through our ministry partners, we deal with this every day. Almost weekly on this campus, our Any Woman Can clinic deals with young women seeking abortions for a variety of reasons. And our counselors try to find ways to give them options to keep the baby that they may have never considered. And they do so with gentleness, with respect, with compassion, and with deep care. We also realize that this is not only an issue for people who are dealing with unwanted pregnancies, but also with people who are desperately wanting children, but are confronted with tragic and heartbreaking medical complications. In every case, this is a time for compassion, a time for mercy, a time for understanding, a time for love for those considering terminating pregnancy, for their families, and especially those people who've been through this. This is a critical moment for our church because it is a time of critical opportunity. Now is a time for us to come together to prove that we are not only pro-life, but that we believe in a pro-life culture, a pro-all-of-life culture. This is a time for proof over rhetoric and a time for prayer over posture. This is a time for us to come together as a church to say that we stand with people, we love them, and in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation. And this is a time for us to say, we love you, we hear you, and we want as a church to point the way to hope, beyond, point the way beyond despair and division to all of life and its fullness. You all know that Mitchell and I wrote a letter this past week. It came to your homes. There is a, uh, that, that letter was not only from the two of us, but it also reflected the view of our entire pastoral staff. And we want you to know again that we love you. We hear you. We love the people that God brings into our ministry and our service. And we're doing everything we can, not simply to be pro-life, but to be pro-all of life and to promote a culture of love, forgiveness, 
mercy, and flourishing. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we seek to promote life in all of its fullness, we ask you to give us patience, give us knowledge where we are ignorant, give us grace when we seem harsh. Lord, help us to be not only clear, but careful and compassionate as well. In all things, Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Now, if we could, let's turn our attention to our scripture passage for today. It comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. This is a wonderful passage about freedom. And today we are between two important days that celebrate freedom. So if you would, please turn to chapter 8, verses 31 through 36 of the Gospel of John. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. So Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. On July 4th, 1776, the members of the Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence. In just a few days, we'll be celebrating that day as a day of freedom. I'm reminded of the words of President Ronald Reagan. In a letter, President Reagan wrote this. He said, our nation exists for one purpose, to assure each one of us the ultimate in individual freedom consistent with law and order. God meant America to be free because God intended each man and woman to have the dignity of freedom. Now as we round the corner from June to July, there's another important date that we need to remember. As a new Texan, I have recently paid more attention to June 19th or Juneteenth. Now see, although Texans have recognized it for years, Juneteenth is a new national holiday, not previously recognized outside of Texas. If you ask my relatives and friends from back east about Juneteenth, they think it's the same thing as Cinco de Mayo. They don't understand the difference. But there is a world of difference, a profound difference. On June 19, 1865, more than two years after President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston, Texas with news that the war had ended and that all those held in slavery in Texas and in the Confederacy were free. Now I want you to remember, that was two and a half years 
after the Emancipation Proclamation became official on January 1st, 1863. On that day in 1865, those who were held in bondage for generations discovered that they had been set free from their slavery. Now that is incredible, life-changing news. And yet this news was not delivered to the slave community in Texas for two and a half years. For all that time, they continued to live a miserable existence. And it's heartbreaking to think that so many people died in those two years, not knowing that they were free. How can a slave know that he's free if he's never heard that he's free? And how will he hear that he's free if someone doesn't tell him? What does it mean to be free? And what is the freedom that Christ has won for us that he's talking about in John chapter 8? Well, first of all, Christ frees us from sin. Jesus saves us not only from the penalty of sin, but he also saves us from the tyranny of sin. When I say that Jesus freed us from the tyranny of sin, I mean that he frees us from sin's control. The Bible says that we are under control of sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a friend of mine used to live in the Philippines. And one time, his church went to minister to the poor people who lived in this huge garbage dump, this landfill outside of Manila. And there these people lived, scrounging for food and living off of the waste of the city. And Rick sent me a couple of pictures. He sent me pictures of a river that flowed slowly through the middle of this dump. The water was full of garbage. It was full of human waste. It was full of contamination. I only saw the picture. I can only imagine how bad it smelled. But the most disturbing thing about the scene was that there were people, men, women, and children, bathing in this river of filth, swimming in it, playing in it, floating lazily downstream with the current of death and disease like they were tubing down the Guadalupe during the summer. And they didn't even realize, they didn't even know that this river of filth was killing them. But as long as they were in the river, that current was controlling where they went. That's the way sin is. It's so pervasive. It's so widespread. It's so commonplace that we don't even notice it. Every day we participate in a world and a culture and attitudes that deny or defy the holiness of God. Sin is a wide and deep rolling river of rebellion against God. And you know what? We're caught in the current. It pushes us along, it defiles us, it poisons us, and it keeps pushing us farther and farther away from God and from one another. What's sad is that 
to get away from God, all you have to do is go with the flow. All you have to do is drift along with the sewage and the garbage of greed and pride and self-centeredness and gossip and lust and sexual immorality and gluttony and addiction. A lot of people who consider themselves free are simply floating in the current of sin. But the truth is they're not free. They're not in control. Beloved, you've heard me say this before. We have to take sin seriously. Otherwise, we will never take grace seriously. And if we don't take grace seriously, then we really aren't taking Jesus and his death on the cross seriously. Because Jesus came to tell us, you don't have to go along with this current. You don't have to float in this filth. You don't have to, to, to be in this pain, in this corruption. You are a child of God. You are a child of the King. You know, we may look at ourselves and say, how could God love me? I'm so filthy. But Jesus says, no, you're not filthy. You're forgiven. Jesus frees us from sin's control. Second, Jesus frees us from conformity. You know, usually when we talk about peer pressure, we're referring to the social pressure exerted on young people to, to do drugs or to drink or to be sexually adventurous. But you know what? Peer pressure doesn't end in high school. Peer pressure doesn't even end in college. As a matter of fact, I think it gets even worse the older you get. How many of you all feel peer pressure right now in your life? Okay, the rest of you are lying. Because we feel peer pressure in our jobs to go along with the world's values. Frankly, I think adults are weaker than kids. Whether it's job pressure or lifestyle pressure or social pressure, the message comes through loud and clear. Conform. When Jesus is saying that he sets us free, he's saying you don't have to just go along with the crowd. The gospel frees us from conformity to the world's values. And whether we like it or not, all of us, even most church people, are more disciples of Charles Darwin than they are of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean that most of us subscribe more deeply to the belief in survival of the fittest than we do the freedom of the gospel. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins. We fear too much the loss of comfort, the loss of security, the loss of social standing, the loss of position or power. And we forget that life is not measured in terms of years or decades, but in terms of eternity. We forget that the things that seem most important now are not the things that will be important forever. Jesus said, do not be anxious for your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these other things, they'll be added to you. But don't be anxious about these things. Third, Christ frees us from legalism. Now, what is legalism? Put simply... Legalism is do-it-yourself religion. It's the idea that we earn God's love 
and that we prove our merit by following God's rules better than other people. The problem is that legalism leads to a kind of spiritual arrogance. On the one hand, legalism leads people to believe that my salvation depends ultimately on my efforts, more on my efforts than on the grace of God, more on my efforts than on the work of Christ. They believe that, that Christ makes righteousness available, but it is my self-righteousness through compliance that makes it effectual. In other words, I save me. Right? Ever felt like that was necessary? I save me. Therefore, self-righteousness is actually a form of self-idolatry. On the other hand, legalism also leads us to a holier-than-thou disposition that begets contempt for other people. Because legalism is all about making a holy show. In Matthew 23, 3-5, Jesus warned, Do not do what the Pharisees do. Everything they do is for men to see. The problem with the Pharisees was not the law, but their legalism. Jesus said, I've not come to overthrow the law, but to fulfill it. But what he came to denounce was a religion that said, you know what? It's all up to you. Because legalism always perverts obedience into lovelessness. It rejects patience, mercy, humility. It becomes a source of, con of condemnation and deep anxiety. And for many people, it just leads to despair and this crushing sense of failure that we'll never meet up to God's standards. But the gospel frees us from legalism by declaring that grace is not earned by man climbing up to God, but rather it is a free gift given by a God who came down to us, who became one of us, who got down in the mud and the blood and the mess and the stress of our lives to prove how much he loves us. Fourth, Christ frees us from superstition. Now, why on earth would I bring up superstition in 2022? I'm not just talking about breaking a mirror or burying a, a statue of Joseph upside down in your front yard when you're trying to sell your house. I had several people ask me about that one after the last service, actually. It's like, I'm not going to get into it. But according to Webster, a superstition is a belief or practice resulting from ignorance, fear of the unknown, trust in magic or chance, or a false conception of causation. For all of our science, for all of our rationalism, we are still very superstitious people. We buy into tradition and prejudices, fads, and all, uh, all kinds of popular nonsense. Propaganda, conspiracy theories, political correctness, they're all contemporary forms of superstition. Our willingness to believe anything we see on the internet or in the newspaper or that some politician or celebrity or news commentator tells us, that's superstition. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Christ wants us to be free of false doctrine, especially the silly false doctrines that pervert biblical prophecy and prey on fear. Fears like critical race theory or the the greed inspired by so-called prosperity gospel that exploits greed and entices people with the promises of God's good fortune. In a word, the danger of superstition is that it gives power to things that have no power or that defy God. And Jesus wants us to put our faith in the real power, the real truth, and the real sovereignty of the living God. Don't give what you have, even your mind, to things that have no power. Now, there's so much more to be said on each of these points. There are lots of ways, lots of other ways that Christ sets us free. But I want to end on one more. And that is that finally, Christ sets us free from the fear of death. In John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? These were not just words. Jesus proved his power. Right after he uttered these words by raising Lazarus from the dead, And then again on Easter Sunday when he left the tomb empty. You know, this week has been a tough week in the life of our church. We've lost several beloved brothers and sisters. Charlie Robinson, Albert Biedenharn, Betty Anderson, just yesterday, Martha Pigeon. But you know what? Grieve though we do, We do not grieve as those who have no hope because Jesus Christ is alive and death is defeated. Jesus frees us from the fear of death and he frees us to live with courage. Not just courage over death, but courage to live every day. You know, when you and I woke up this morning, the biggest decision we probably had to make was what to wear to church this morning. And yet all over the world, in places like Iran and China and Morocco and across East Africa, we have brothers and sisters who had to decide whether or not going to church was worth the risk of getting caught or going to prison or being killed by terrorists. And you know what? They went. They went because they aren't bound and distracted by the same chains that bind and distract us. They did it because they understand that Jesus Christ is so much bigger and so much better than anything that we can lose in this world. The Apostle Paul wrote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. For Paul, those words were not just pretty poetry. Paul was beaten and imprisoned and ostracized for his faith, and yet he said, it's all worth it. Because nothing I have and nothing I've lost is better than being and living with Christ. Nothing is better than knowing and serving him. And there is nothing, no angel, no ruler, no tribulation or torture or things present or things to come, nothing in this life and not even death that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is his declaration that God is going to take care of us even if we die. Nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the promise of eternal life is not given simply to allay our fears for the future, to answer the question of what happens when we die. The reason that Jesus frees us from the fear of death is so that we can live with radical love and radical discipleship now. The freedom from the fear of death releases courage into our lives. It frees us to take risks. It frees us to follow Christ as the early church did. Jesus frees us not to live recklessly, but to live courageously, anchored in the sovereignty of God and armed with faith in a life-giving, grave-defying Savior. You know, if July 4th reminds us that God made us for freedom in Him, then Juneteenth reminds us of our Christian duty as disciples of Jesus Christ. And that duty is to tell other people about that freedom. Remember, President Reagan uh, Reagan wrote, God meant America to be free because God intended each man and woman to have the dignity of freedom. Juneteenth should not only remind us of our freedom in Christ, Juneteenth should remind us that we have a mission to tell other people that they are free. Even though Jesus Christ won our freedom on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, most people living today don't know it yet. The Apostle Paul wrote, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It doesn't mean preaching like I'm doing now. It means telling the good news, telling people about their freedom. This passage in John 8 is not only about what Jesus sets us free from, it's about what he sets us free for. Jesus frees our hearts to love without counting the cost. He frees us from feeling like we always have to be right and from the arrogance that we must always win or that we cannot suffer insults. He frees us to turn the other cheek or to forgive even when forgiveness is hard and not asked. He frees us to say, I'm sorry, And he frees us to serve people, homeless people, helpless people, even those we might consider worthless or beyond help and hope, and to do it without worrying about what other people are going to think. Jesus came to set us free from a river of sin and death and denial and ignorance 
a river that is carrying us farther and farther from God and each other. But you know what? My Aunt Effie Lowe used to say it takes a strong fish to swim against the current. To be free is not to live selfishly, doing whatever one wants whenever one wants. Rather, it is to dream with hope, to love without fear, to stand with holiness, and to live with courage. In his book, Beyond the Mirror, Henry Nouwen wrote this. He said, The great spiritual task facing me is to fully trust that I belong to God and that I can be free in the world. Free to speak even when my words are not received. Free to act even when my actions are criticized, ridiculed, or considered useless. Free also to receive love from people and to be grateful for all the signs of God's presence in this world. May God grant us his freedom and may he grant us the courage to tell everyone about the freedom that he's given them. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, by your truth you have set us free. By your blood shed, by your body broken, through your death and resurrection, you have proven that there is nothing that can stop us from your will. That there is nothing that can dominate us with more fear than your power. Lord, help us to understand that we can never outrun the grace of your cross. And we need never feel that we must climb up to you because you have already come down to us. Lord, help us now not only to receive the freedom of our, for ourselves, the grace of your Son, but help us, Lord, to share that freedom, especially with the people who are so imprisoned, who are drifting, who are bound, and who are trapped. Lord, help us to show your love with grace. Help us to live courageously and to point always to the hope of life in its fullness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.